Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network. And the following episode is being republished from the Canadian Medical Association Journal's podcast series. CMAJ's podcasts are just terrific. I listen to a lot of them. They concern medicine and society, clinical practices. They have interviews with doctors, interviews with scholars on new books concerning medicine, the history of medicine, the practice of medicine, Pretty much everything somebody interested in healthcare might be curious about. They're extremely well produced, very professional, and I highly recommend them to you. To find CMAJ's podcasts, what you need to do is just go to Google and type in CMAJ and podcasts, and that will take you right there. And I encourage you to subscribe. I hope you enjoy the following interview. In today's reality of opioid addiction epidemics in many areas of the world, naloxone is highly regarded as a life-saving drug that reverses opioid overdose. It's widely available in Canada without a prescription, and the general population is encouraged to have a take-home naloxone kit in case of emergency. But naloxone has been around for many decades, and it hasn't always been highly regarded. Its history is a fascinating one. I'm Dr. Dorian Deschauer, Associate Editor for the Canadian Medical Association Journal. Today, I'm speaking with Professor Nancy Campbell. Dr. Campbell has written an article for CMAJ called Naloxone as a Technology of Solidarity, History of Opioid Overdose Prevention. She has also authored many books on the topic of addiction, including Discovering Addiction, the Science and Politics of Substance Abuse Research, as well as a forthcoming book called OD, Naloxone and the Politics of Overdose Prevention. Professor Campbell is joining me today from Troy, New York. Welcome, Nancy. Thank you. I'm very glad to be here. Well, it's great to have you. And could you start off by telling us a bit about who you are and how you even got interested in this topic in the first place? I'm a historian of science and medicine, and I got interested in the politics of addiction research and clinical research and also clinical treatment. When I was writing about 1950s drug policy, I wrote a dissertation in the 1990s, and by the early 2000s, I was starting to think that as a historian, I needed to learn to think pharmacologically. And so I was interviewing many scientists, many of whom were pharmacologists or behavioral pharmacologists or clinical pharmacologists. Um, And many of these scientists had started their careers at the U.S. Public Health Service Narcotic Hospital in Lexington, Kentucky, which had one of the world's only addiction research centers. And so one of the things that the scientists there imagined was whether there could be a magic ratio of an opioid agonist, that is morphine or heroin, to an opioid antagonist like naloxone. And they thought that a magical mixture might help people better manage or even prevent relapse 
or might prevent people from becoming addicted in the first place. And so I was creating history that takes pharmacology seriously. And so I often follow particular molecules around. And I happened to follow with a colleague, Ann Lovell, the 30-year-long trip that it took for buprenorphine, or suboxone, to get to market as an addiction treatment. And when I was writing that article, I thought, no one really talks about naloxone, which is part of suboxone. It's buprenorphine plus naloxone. And I'm hearing an awful lot about naloxone um, in the harm reduction community. And so why don't I start studying what naloxone is and what our hopes and dreams around what narcotic antagonists could do for us uh, were? And so that's how I started the project that became the book that's coming out in February 2020, OD, Naloxone and the Politics of Overdose. Before we get into the history, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about how we think about naloxone today? And then I want to go back and ask you about that role of the naloxone as kind of like the antagonist to um, the opiates and the idea of something that's a mix so that sort of it troubles the idea of what is is it to, to use an, an opiate at all? But we'll get to that later. Exactly. So today, naloxone is much more present and much more widely known and widely used than it ever has been before. Uh, naloxone today is used by bystanders who might happen to witness an overdose event, and it is given by people who don't have necessarily medical training, but have usually been trained by harm reduction organizations uh, so that they know what to do if someone overdoses in their vicinity. And that use I have called naloxone a technology of solidarity because it sends really different messages when we have naloxone available in the community versus when we had naloxone available only in medical settings. Okay, so that kind of segues us back to the history and that raises the question, when did naloxone first come about? And can you tell us a little bit about how it's not always been quite so highly regarded in society? Right, so naloxone, which is a narcotic antagonist, um, and all that means is that an antagonist has a stronger affinity for the opioid receptor than does the opioid, which um, is causing the overdose. An overdose is basically respiratory depression. And so that property of an antagonist to reverse respiratory depression makes it very useful for anesthesiologists who use it every day and also makes it very useful for reversing opioid overdose. Whether you're doing that um, as an emergency medical technician on an ambulance or whether you're doing that as a bystander. And so naloxone itself is an old drug. It was synthesized in 1961 somewhat serendipitously by uh, Jack Fishman, who was working, he was moonlighting actually, for the person who ran uh, the analgesics division at Endo Labs in on Long Island. And they were looking to reduce the constipating effect of the opiate. And anyone who has ever taken an opiate drug 
knows that effect very well and knows how difficult it is uh, to overcome that particular side effect of the opioids. And so when they synthesized naloxone, they didn't really think there was much use for it. They didn't think there was much of a market for it. And so it wasn't approved. They did not really pursue approval by the US FDA um, for opioid reversal until 10 years later. And um, in the meantime, a Japanese company also synthesized naloxone and received a British patent for it before their American patent went through. But the patent did go through and uh, naloxone was approved for overdose reversal in 1971. And at that time, uh, there was another drug. Uh, that was used for opioid reversal, and it was also used in the operating room. And it had a number of other uses, which we'll go into in a, in a minute, uh, because that drug, which was really the first narcotic antagonist to be out there, nalorphine, or its Merck trade name was Naline, that drug had been used by police, and they had used uh, nalorphine as a surveillance tool. They basically used it to detect if someone was um, an opiate user, if someone was a heroin addict, if someone had recently used an opioid, the pupils will change. And if they administer, if they give a shot of nalorphine on top of that opioid use, that person will immediately become extremely sick, what we call dope sick. Uh, that person would uh, go into immediate withdrawal. As a result, uh, many people tried to avoid being injected with nalorphine or naline, and police departments that adopted naline did so because they really wanted to scare people away from using opioid drugs, and they also, um, Naline was adopted by uh, cities like the city of Eureka in Humboldt County uh, in Northern California, and they adopted nalorphine, the police there adopted nalorphine, as a way to keep people from moving to Humboldt County to get jobs in lumber mills. They wanted to keep narcotic addicts out of the lumber mills, and so they adopted nalorphine as a signal. In other words, it was meant to signal, don't come here if you use opioids. If you are a heroin user, if you are using morphine or paragoric or any of the other opioids that were in circulation in California uh, during the 1950s and uh, 60s, Naline was supposed to deter you from that. Now, I recall you telling me about a, a measurement that the police would use. They would measure the person's pupils before and after injecting nalorphine. Is that correct? Yes. So the Oakland, uh, it was actually Alameda County. Um, the Oakland police precinct had a special room downstairs. And if a suspected drug addict was brought in, uh, they would be taken downstairs and they would be put in a modified dentist's chair uh, so that they would be administered a shot of nalorphine. And then there was a uh, device that measured changes in the size of their pupils so that they could confirm or disconfirm that someone had recently 
used um, an opioid drug. And it's interesting that it started in Oakland. Oakland became the model program and the the um, Torvald Brown and some of the other people who worked um, to create uh, the police uh, Naline programs, they were, they were called Naline tests. Uh, they wrote about the program. They had visitors come in. They um, sold the program, in other words, to Singapore, to Hong Kong, to St. Louis, Missouri, uh, many other cities in California, Texas, um, anywhere where cities were beginning to confront uh, the fact that heroin use was growing in the 1950s after World War II, the late 40s and early 1950s, there was a spike in heroin use in places like Chicago, New York City, certainly, but Southern California, Los Angeles, had this um, new problem that they did not know really how to respond to. And so they were using a narcotic antagonist in order to uh, respond in the state of California. Many cities adopted it. The governor really liked it, um, talked about how people should uh, adopt it um, because it would deter drug addicts from moving around, right? And those were the days when nalorphine was really being used as a, a technology of surveillance and social control. The image of, i got to admit, the dentist chair brings to mind Clockwork Orange. And I don't know if that had anything to do with the movie, but it, it certainly sounds like it might have. I don't know whether there was a connection to Clockwork Orange. Uh, many people do think about the narcotic antagonists when they see Clockwork Orange, if they are pharmacologists or people who know about naloxone. So um, I think that there may indeed have been connections, but I don't know any specific ones. However, I do know that the Nalien program and narcotic antagonists more generally were written about uh, in newspapers all over the country. And there was, I would say, positive press about this um, in terms of social order, social control, um, in terms of keeping this this new threat, which was attached often to communities of color and also to teenagers in the 1950s. And so it was beginning to be a bit of a moral panic. And certainly Clockwork Orange uh, was directly working with those kinds of themes. You know, when your CMAJ paper, you mentioned that people who are using opiates kind of caught on to the possibility of being injected with norepinephrine. I guess it would be injected. Um, and it may have driven them to change their, their pattern of drug use. Have you been able to document that or trace sort of resistance against the norepinephrine test? Yeah, so there were certainly uh, local knowledges about how nalorphine worked, how the Naline test was being uh, administered in a given place. Um, it was often people who were on parole or probation were uh, mandated to uh, have weekly um, Naline tests. And if they were drug users, they knew immediately uh, that this was not something that was going to be very comfortable for them. And so there is some documentation from sociologists of the period. And also once in a while, you would have a reporter who actually talked to a drug user. This was an unusual thing for reporters to do in those days and um, included various ways in which people beat the test uh, by uh, and one of them, the most simple, really, was somebody who said, man, 
can. You just got to use after the test, not <laughs> before it. And so when the when the appointments were predictable, people could get around it that way. The other thing that people tried to do, this was before there was urine testing. Um, so the other thing that people tried to do was um, they would use other drugs, things that were non-opioids. And a narcotic antagonist really does nothing if it is administered uh, to someone who doesn't have an opioid in their system already, although Naline does more than did more than naloxone. Naline was a um, a narcotic antagonist that had some analgesic effects, and so it made people have really bad uh, dreams, and it also made people uh, dysphoric. So there were some uh, effects of that drug that would happen even if you didn't have an opioid in your system. And so what people would do would be they would take an amphetamine or they would um, uh, get high. Um, in, in other words, they realized that these other classes of psychoactive drugs did not show up on the test. And so in a lot of ways, and, and there were a few sociologists um, in the 60s and 70s who blame um, amphetamine abuse in California on the Naline test because coincidentally or not, um, amphetamine abuse was, and use was, um, greatest in jurisdictions that had the Naline test. And so some people made the causal connection that the Naline test, the presence of it was actually causing amphetamine use. Um, as anyone who's used amphetamines or understands the need for stimulants, uh, probably that wasn't causal. Uh, but it is interesting that um, as communities became more familiar with the test, they did begin to modify their drug using practices and certainly the schedule with which they used an opioid. I think it's so fascinating to think about how technologies get introduced and 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 policies end up having unintended consequences. And it sounds like the nailing program had its share of unintended consequences. It did. And then um, you also have to think about the fact that nail, uh, the nailing program, the test, is still uh, considered admissible evidence in court in the in California and the nailing test and the use of nalorphine lasted far 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 into the 1970s even after naloxone was approved what you generally had in hospitals and on ambulances was nalorphine not naloxone and so the the um the way in which technologies are adopted, where you always have early adopters, and there were early adopters of naloxone, um, for instance, the Freedom Ambulance, Freedom House Ambulance Company in Pittsburgh had naloxone very early uh, compared to other ambulance companies, other paramedics. That emergency paramedic medicine was very new in the 1970s. And so it's a it's an interesting story the displacement of nalorphine by naloxone was very gradual. It was not sudden. It wasn't as if naloxone suddenly became um, known as a much better narcotic antagonist, much purer, much fuller in its action, and that displaced nalorphine immediately. There was a long 
kind of period of time when um, it was uneven uh, who would have access to naloxone and who would have access to nalorphine. So that brings us to the next stage of a conversation, I guess, really is about adoption and what it sounds like a phase-in period for, what, a decade or decade and a half? And I think somewhere in, in your CMAJ paper and, and also in your book, you talk about needle exchanges playing a role. I'm, I'm wondering if you could sort of walk us through how naloxone gets itself woven into the fabric of North American medical life and then eventually more broadly. Right. Uh, and I also, I also want to quickly say something about the UK because, um, naloxone, when people ended up in an emergency setting, either in hospital or in pre-hospital care, and they were in the midst of an opioid overdose, when they were administered naloxone, the dosage is actually very important because naloxone, um, can at high doses, really wake someone up very abruptly. That phenomenon is called over-antagonism. And that was widely practiced in emergency rooms. Uh, The evidence that we have for that practice um, is much greater, actually, in the city of Glasgow in Scotland, where um, there was documentation of over-antagonism. But I suspect that over-antagonism was regularly practiced throughout the United States. The emphasis when someone's in an emergent situation is to save their life. And so people might administer high doses of naloxone to make sure they do that. And a high dose of naloxone is going to make someone almost gasp as they come to. They might sit up. They might become combative. They might, in other words, it's a very energetic and abrupt kind of waking. And that gave naloxone, like nalorphine before it, um, some negative reputation. If people knew about it, they might think, yes, it saved someone's life. But they might also, if they were drug users, they might think um, that that made them feel pretty sick and uh, sicker than they had ever felt before and very abruptly, um, very ill, nauseous, um, and, and feeling very bad. And so the adoption of naloxone um, was in many ways uh, conditioned by its pharmacological effects. And I think that's what I, as a historian, really had to recognize and come to terms with, that how we as a society respond to a drug has a great deal to do Um, with the pharmacological effects of that drug. We can't really deny that. Now, the story around how naloxone moved, it really did not move for a very long time. And that's why we have to fast forward in time into the 1980s to begin to think about um, the idea of needle exchange, which in the United States, as opposed to the UK and Canada, needle exchange um, was a very slow, very difficult, and actually illegal um, in in almost, well, really almost everywhere in the United States because there were paraphernalia laws that made it illegal actually to carry naloxone as well as to have needles if you were not prescribed them. And so the early story of needle exchange in the United States um, was when drug users themselves 
and uh, people who were close to them began to organize needle exchanges that would offer clean needles um, either in return for used needles, and that happened around HIV-AIDS, right? So there were not organized needle exchanges, although there had been some attempt to organize them in response to hepatitis, um, and there began to be uh, what I would call a discourse of harm reduction um, that begins. The United States lagged far behind in harm reduction. It was really um, started elsewhere in the UK and in Europe. And it was not um, until much later uh, that people in the United States um, who were often um, activists, and so the United States has a much more activist profile when it comes to harm reduction, because we did not have a national health service into which we could infuse principles of, of harm reduction. And we did not have a very um, organized sector of kind of public health oriented drug users. And so we had, we really worked very differently in the United States um, than you were able to do in Canada and also in um, the UK, uh, where we, it took a long time and a lot of civil disobedience and it took a lot of um, collaborative agreements with police to simply turn away from illegal activity in the form of needle exchange. And so needle exchanges did begin to be organized. And it was really on the basis of needle exchange um, that activists uh, began to think maybe we could add really uh, naloxone and overdose prevention to what we're already doing with needle exchange. Maybe harm reduction uh, could mean many different kinds of concrete, pragmatic actions that we might take to reduce drug-related harm. And certainly one large drug-related harm was HIV transmission. Mm. So, I mean, when you talk about harm reduction and you talk about policies of, of moderation in the United States, or certainly I think of, of parallels with other substances, alcohol comes to mind. And the idea is what is what does it mean to be in recovery so as you were talking, I was I was just thinking, are there any sort of parallels that you draw as a historian uh, when you're thinking about opiates, alcohol, sort of things that go across substance types? Or do you think that we it's best to think very specifically in terms of the molecules themselves? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think that socially um, polydrug use and certainly the mixing of opioids and alcohol and benzodiazepines, which present extremely dangerous situations when you have many respiratory depressants together. Um, and so polydrug use is by far the most common pattern. And when we think about overdose, um, it is uh, very rare these days and it has been very rare for quite a while in the United States uh, for anyone to be using just one substance. And so although there had been uh, prescriptions in the 50s and 60s even against opioid users drinking alcohol, um, those really gave way. That kind of really cultural lore about how important it is not to mix uh, respiratory depressants uh, went away. So I think it's always important to recognize that no one is a pure heroin addict. I mean, these days, fentanyl is often mixed in heroin in the North American heroin supply. 
Um, and opioid users are often mixing benzodiazepines uh, and alcohol and um, other other downers with heroin. And so I think it's really important to understand that naloxone only um, is effective with opioids, although there is um, a lot of uh, interest in whether there are um, spillover effects with other um, downers. That's not really been shown to be to be the case. And so I think it is really important for people to understand um, that naloxone may need to be given at a higher dosage or may need to be given multiple times because naloxone is extremely short acting. And so the opioid that someone might have taken may not be short acting. It may be a longer acting longer acting than the window that you're going to get with the administration of naloxone. So there are a lot of technical problems here, right? There are a lot of pharmacological and technical issues um, that um, really we don't have time when we're training people to use naloxone and when we are trying to um, get harm reduction messages out into the public sphere. We can't really go into all of those kinds of details. And so um, what ends up happening is that naloxone looks like the pure antagonist that it is, but there are many contextual factors that determine whether someone lives or dies. There are many um, protective factors uh, when it comes to tolerance. So to get back to your question about recovery, it's very interesting that um, recovery has many meanings to many people. Recovery um, may mean you abstain, abstinence-based recovery. That abstinence-based recovery can be very, very dangerous because it can take someone's tolerance down so far that if they do relapse, a lower dose than what they are used to taking might kill them. Mm. And so recovery may mean abstinence, and that may work for some people, but many people relapse even if they're in abstinence-based um, programs. And recovery may also mean, and this this was something that surprised me. I didn't know this before I began the research for this book, but there's such a thing as harm reduction recovery. So it used to mean, harm reduction used to mean that you might go on using uh, drugs. And this is why um, conservative, cultural conservatives often don't like uh, harm reduction because they say you're just condoning um, the use of drugs. You're making it easier for people to do um, illegal things. And so that kind of attitude at first um, positioned harm reduction against any kind of recovery. And now you begin to see something really different. I was shocked when I walked the first time I walked into a uh, recovery oriented um, program and saw naloxone on people's desks and realized that this recovery oriented uh, treatment program uh, was essentially teaching people how to use naloxone, had naloxone in case people needed to use it in their offices, and uh, was basically not requiring that people uh, are in abstinence-based recovery. I also saw hybrid programs of that kind in England and Scotland, and I began to realize 
that there is such a thing as um, harm reduction oriented recovery, where people are beginning to realize, uh, let's actually target our messages, both our recovery oriented messages and our harm reduction oriented messages to what people actually do. In other mm. words, what practices are people engaged in and what do they need to keep themselves and uh, the people close to them uh, safe? Well, that, that kind of brings me to my next question, or at least the next thing that's on my mind as you're, as you're describing this, it is what is the implication of your research to the very way, say, psychiatry, the DSM, defines an addiction? And do you think that your work has implications for the way the people in the medical profession might want to start thinking about addiction? Well, you know, it's interesting. As a historian who wrote an entire book about uh, the way in which addiction researchers' concepts of addiction changed, so scientific concepts of addiction have changed quite a bit um, in, let's say, let's just say for the sake of argument, the past hundred years. Uh, about a hundred years ago, there were ideas about neurophysiological uh, changes in the brain, the central nervous system, um, about addiction. And uh, we've had many other concepts of addiction, more based in social deprivation, in psychiatric or even psychopathological accounts of addiction. We've had behavioral accounts of addiction. We have, in other words, many, many accounts of addiction. And um, in the 1990s in the United States, there was a real attempt to uh, redefine addiction as a chronic relapsing brain disorder or disease. And then we had a process with the DSM revisions that redefined substance use disorder around dimensions and degrees. And some of that, I think, is good. I think it's very important for people to understand that there are degrees of it, um, that there are dimensions of addiction um, or substance abuse disorder, which has had many different names over this uh, 100-year period, um, takes different forms with different people, and it has a different level of tenacity depending upon things that we still don't know. Addiction is a very complex disorder. And I use the term addiction still in part because neuroscientists use the term addiction. For a long time, they didn't. Scientists said, let's think instead about drug dependence or chemical mm -hmm. dependence or substance abuse or behavioral problems, right, that are not, that are considered socially problematic, but that are not tied to a particular molecule to a particular substance, to a particular social context. And so we have very interesting ideas about addiction. And I think that the most important um, implication of any of my work for the scientists, the clinicians, and really for the per person on the street is that there is no one definition of addiction and there is no one treatment that is will work for everyone. And that the really important thing that we need to know is that most people need more than one opportunity. They need more than one chance to enter into um, 
any kind of treatment, and they are probably not using for the same reasons. And so it's really very important for people to see the varieties of um, the forms, the shapes um, that the, this disorder takes for different people and to understand that there is not going to be a technological fix. Naloxone is certainly not a technological fix. Um, one could arguably say, I wish that we did not need as much naloxone as we do. I wish we did not need to get naloxone out as widely as we do. I wish that people didn't need it as much as they do, but the fact is they do. But it's still an emergent um, fix. In other words, it it is going to perhaps give people opportunities to do something different um, and to find something that would work better for them. But naloxone is a second chance. It is not, uh, it is an opportunity rather than an outcome. It is the beginning of a story, not the end. Well, Nancy, as a psychiatrist, I've also become skeptical about simple technological solutions for complex life problems. And as you've shown in your book, naloxone is hardly a simple technological solution. Thank you so much for joining us today here at CMAJ Podcasts. I've really enjoyed the opportunity to talk. And I have to say that in Canada, I think this is a, a different story because Canada has been so oriented towards harm reduction. So thank you for letting me share the um, less salutary experience that we've had here in the United States. And uh, thank you for helping me get the word out about the book. I hope people in Canada will still like reading it, even though it really is about the U.S. and the U.K. Thank you. I've been speaking with Dr. Nancy Campbell, Professor and Department Head of Science and Technology Studies at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute in Troy, New York. To read the Medicine and Society article she wrote, visit cmaj.ca. Also, don't forget to subscribe to CMAJ Podcasts on SoundCloud or a podcast app. And let us know how we're doing by leaving a rating. I'm Dr. Dorian Deschauer. Associate Editor for the Canadian Medical Association Journal. Thank you for listening.